Right, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 2, picking up in John's account from where we left last week, looking today at Jesus as the true temple. And so in our story from last week, we studied the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine, which John indicates is the first of the signs that Jesus performed at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him and we uh, saw last week that with the water to wine miracle jesus is addressing the the issue of purification as he's uh, transforming the water that was designed for purification into the wine that was designed for the wedding feast and pointing to the ultimate purification that's going to come through uh, him as he's moving toward the cross and in this story uh, G- John, in recording this this uh, event in the life of Jesus, is is pointing to the essence and the nature of true worship. Now, again, to be clear, Jesus is the focus of the story. The previous story occurred in relative obscurity. We don't really know where Canaan and Galilee was. We don't know who this family was. Uh, we don't know who even the bride and groom were um, that that were around the wedding uh, event there however this event at the second half of chapter two occurs in jerusalem at the time of the passover and so we're, we're going from obscurity to uh quite a prominent event and so the previous event addresses purification from sin that's going to come from jesus this event uh, symbolizes the nature of true worship that's going to be through jesus and if you think about it, it actually makes sense with the the theologically even how these how these events are sequentially numbered here with uh, before we can truly worship Christ, what must has to be taken care of sin. Right. And so once our sin is purified, it is atoned for in Christ, then we are free to worship Christ. And so let's read our text here in John chapter 12, uh, chapter two. I'm sorry. We're going to pick it up in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. John two thirteen. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Quite an interesting story. We go from kind of an, oh, that was really neat moment to, oh my goodness, did that just happen moment. So we have the peaceful serenity of a wedding feast and Jesus making provision for this bridegroom who didn't have either the means or the wherewithal to make provision for himself. And we're left feeling 
uplifted and encouraged. And then we move into this moment and we see a totally different picture of Jesus. And so consider first the, the setting, the, the immediate event that preceded this event is the wedding at Cana. And John tells us in verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews is at hand. And as Jews, Jesus and the disciples went up to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover with the uh, with the people. And so this is the first Passover of three that are referenced in John's gospel account. And f- from chapter 2 through verse 12, where we read a couple weeks ago, uh, last week actually, where Jesus refers to his hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come. And then there's that transition moment in chapter 12 where he says, my hour has come, my hour is at hand. And chapter 2 through 12, all the narrative centers around in some way these feasts that the, that the Jews celebrate. And John introduces that with the feast of the passover so you have the temple here and there's a key to understand for a jewish mind as this event is transpiring the temple was the location where worshipful jews would go to seek and to worship god this is not solomon's temple in all of its splendor nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it and after captivity the people had rebuilt the temple under ezra's uh direction and this is not quite the significance of solomon's temple but it still has the same spiritual and theological significance for the jews because we looked at several weeks ago now we're in sermon seven by the way of john's gospel we looked at how the temple for the jewish mind was the dwelling place of the glory of god Right. And so this is the location of God's glory going back to John 1, 14. When you understand this, it helps us to understand why Jesus does things like this when he comes into the temple. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so you have the temple and John tells us that this is the time of the Passover. And this is a time when Jewish pilgrims from all over. Not just the immediate vicinity, from, but from all over, would travel to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate this Passover together to remember the actual first Passover, the, the event that led to the exodus of God's people from Egypt when God was rolling out all the plagues and the final plague was that death plague on the firstborn. And God said, you're going to do this. You're going to, have a, you're going to sacrifice a lamb. And if you want the death angel to pass over you, if you want to, the death angel to see that you actually belong to me, then put... Blood on the doorpost of your home and the death angel will pass over. And so each year Jews would go to the temple to celebrate this Passover event. And so this is clearly a season of heightened excitement, heightened, heightened spirituality, even as they're understanding the Old Testament more fully, heightened messianic expectation, longing for the Messiah to come. Uh, You would have things like reverential awe. You would have prayer, devotion. All of these things would center around this event. And so Jesus shows up into this context in Jerusalem, in the temple, and he finds actually the exact opposite. John says in verse 14, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So he finds merchants who are selling and money changers who are exchanging money. Uh, Both of these aspects in and of themselves are not bad. They are not wrong. People traveled long distances to come to the to come to the temple to celebrate Passover. So it was much more convenient, much easier for them to actually buy an animal to sacrifice than to drag one from days away. And so that is is not wrong in and of itself. Uh, And so the merchants would sell animals to these pilgrims. And then also male Jews, 20 years old and up, were required to pay a temple tax in a specific 
type of money which was made of pure silver and most people didn't have this actually actual type of money and so they would come and they would exchange money and so you had people there who had this Tyrian silver and you would come and you would go with your American silver and exchange it and have the pure silver and then you could go and pay your your temple tax which was part of your religious duty so that's the setting at two two truths that that come out of both of these large paragraphs of this section uh, and the first truth is that Jesus confronts improper worship. And so what he's doing here is he's confronting improper worship. We, we get a hint that something is off here in verse 14. Whenever John says in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. If you're just reading the story, not really aware of even the Jewish background, you're kind of like, hmm, that's an interesting note to put there. And what we see, we see two aspects of this proper worship. One is confused worship and the other is obstructive worship. First, the confused worship for the Jew. For the Old Testament messianic longing for Jesus to come Jew. God was the supreme treasure of the temple. And the temple was the place in their mind where God's glory dwelt. And so what has happened in as time has gone on in this setting into which Jesus steps here. God's supreme treasure of the temple, but this commerce system set up in the temple has actually made man the supreme tre- supreme treasure of the temple. And so temple worship designed for Yahweh God and Yahweh worship alone has been confused with all of these events, all of the merchants and the money changers and all of these things. And so this, this intrusion of these merchants, merchants creates a, a confusing effect, distracting worshipers from the one goal of this event. This event is to commemorate God's hand of providence in the Passover event. And so they step into the temple and it's sounds and sights and smells. And the problem is not the fact that people are selling animals for sacrifice the problem is not the fact that people are exchanging money so you could pay the temple tax the problem is the location that this is actually happening this is happening in the temple and so john says in verse 14 in the temple he found these things and so there's confusion there's confused worship but there's also obstructed worship Commerce in the temple is obstructing the worshipers access to god which is the whole point of the temple and so you have various areas in the temple, but the, the language that John uses, the word temple that's translated for us temple in verse 14, 14, points to the fact that this is actually going on in the court of the Gentiles, which is the outermost court of the temple, which is a statement that we'll come back to in just a second as we consider what Jesus is doing here. So the, the main problem that Jesus is confronting is that the temple had devolved into being focused on man rather than God. And so therefore, the disciples rightly interpret this event with Psalm 69, verse 9. We read it in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house has consumed me. And so D.A. Carson makes this comment on the, the setting here that instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there's noisy commerce. And so this is the setting. All these factors are joining together to create this atmosphere of improper worship, which Jesus obviously has a problem with based on the way he responds to the setting into which he steps. His problem is this location. And so we find here that he has this this proper zeal that allows him to do something like verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. 
And he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So what does Jesus do? He walks into this confused, this obstructed environment. And what does he do? He starts making a whip. When, when the guy walks in and he starts fashioning a weapon, <laughs> maybe murmuring in as he's fashioning this weapon, they've made my father's house a market. They've made my father's house a market. You know something is up. Probably taking these, making this whip out of leads that would have been used to actually tie up these animals, lead these animals into this. He's not like Indiana Jones, right? He's not like pulling the whip off of his side. He's making the whip. He shows up and he sees the thing and he starts braiding together this whip and he starts driving the people and the animals out. He starts flipping tables. He starts taking coin buckets and pouring out coins. Like you think about the chaos that was before this moment. Right. Jesus comes in and amplifies the chaos, but he amplifies the chaos on purpose because he is pushed by zeal. Verse 17, his disciples remembered like in the moment, his disciples don't get it. Right. Like so many things as we as we go through John in the moment, the disciples don't get so much. They understand post resurrection. We'll see that in just a second. And so here, verse 17, John says his disciples remember that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. You have to just imagine for the disciples, though, it's like. I didn't realize this is what zeal actually looked like, right? Because they're seeing the one who said, follow me, and they followed him, who is just, in their minds, going crazy, but he's, in, he's acting out in zeal, and he's driving out all of these sources of improper worship. And so we look at this, and we think, man, that's a crazy event in the life of Jesus. Did he lose control in this moment? Did he lose his mind in this moment? Did he go like momentarily crazy? Like, did he finally snap? No, not at all. This is all calculated. This is all infinitely controlled by the Lord Jesus. And so he's confronting improper worship. So that's number one. Jesus confronts improper worship. The second truth that we see in the story is that Jesus points to true worship. So he's confronting improper worship, but then he goes on and he actually points to true worship. So how do we interpret this rather odd act of Jesus? What is the true purpose of the temple? The true purpose of the temple is that of worship. The temple was the location where God followers would come to actually meet with God. And Passover is that time when this reality is heightened more than any other time of the year. And so on the Jewish calendar, it was Passover. That was the big event for them spiritually and even nationally. And so Jesus shows up, he surveys the, the situation, and he immediately goes to work setting things right, making things right. And so his cleansing of the temple merely validates his concern for pure worship, true worship, pointing to a right relationship with God at this place that is designated for this focal point of the relationship between God and man. And so how do the, how do the authorities respond? We, we understand we, how to interpret the event through how the authorities come to Jesus. So look at verse 18. The authorities' question is one of authority. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, this is, remember we've, we've been introduced to the Jews before when they come and ask, who are you to John the Baptist? Indicating some leaders in the Jewish system. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice what is missing from their inquisition. Hey, have you lost your mind? You get out there and you bring back in all those oxen. 
pick up this mess. They don't accuse him of doing anything wrong. They don't say anything against what he actually did. They want to know, what authority do you have for doing what you did? What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus in cleansing the temple and running all these people and merchants and money changers out of the temple, he is enacting his claim to authority, ultimately claim to the temple. And so now they show up and they say, okay, tell us on whose authority are you doing this? And so they're asking, what gives you the right to think that you have the authority to regulate what happens in the house of God? What gives you the authority to tell us what should happen in the temple? So their question shows that they are less concerned about true worship and proper approach to God than they are with the threat that they perceive out of this person to their own authority. Right? It's not an issue of you are messing up our system. It's an issue of you're undermining our authority because we are the ones who are supposed to be doing what you're doing. And so on whose authority are you doing this? And so their question, their, their, their question to Jesus in verse 18 is merely a prove who you are question. And so what are they asking for? A sign. What sign do you show us for doing these things? And so they're asking, what is the validation for what you are doing here? Do something to show us that you've got the authority to do this. In other words, perform some kind of miracle. Perform some kind of sign that points to what you just did. And Jesus doesn't perform a sign. He doesn't give them a sign. He actually just performed the sign. When he's flipping tables and running people out and setting things right and proper in the temple, he performed the sign. And so at this point, he also gives them truth. And so, so their, their questioning is not one of you've done, you've done wrong, but what authority? But then also, their question implies that they, they recognize at least some level of authority in this person. Because they didn't just say, hey, you're some crazy hooligan that just came off the street that's just totally going insane in this environment they say what sign do you perform what sign do you show us for doing these things what is your authority what shows that they didn't perceive him as some insane man they didn't see him as some crazy person they're looking for this sign so their question to him is prove who you are according to what you've just done. And we know that Jesus doesn't perform on command, right? We looked at that last week. They are out of wine. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Right? And so Jesus in pointing to true worship, actually, verse 19 points to himself as true worship. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and, we'll, and in three days I will raise it up. We're going to notice that Jesus always answers questions without answering the question. It's just, like, questions come to him, and you just read it, you read his response, and you just like, where did that come from? And this is, a, this is one of those occasions. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews who came to him had to be like, what? What, what did he just say? And so in, in making this statement in verse 19, Jesus is actually pointing to himself as true worship. And so what he's like, we, we know the story as it, as it unveils with verse 21. After they say, 
uh, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days. In other words, dude, you, you might be a little bit crazy. 46 years it took to build this thing. Three days, I don't think it's going to happen that way. So they're thinking what? Physical, brick and mortar is what they're thinking. But he was speaking of the temple of his body, verse 21. When therefore, verse 22, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So his disciples in the moment were kind of in the background like, man, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. Maybe he answers their question because that'll help us as well. Which they don't understand. They don't know how to rightly interpret this event, event until the resurrection actually has occurred. And so what Jesus is teaching here, what he is saying here is that he is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the true and better temple. With the coming of the Messiah, the focus is no longer on a location, but the focus is on a person. And so this story is not about the temple. This story is about Jesus. And the temple itself, this focal point where God and believers meet, this is where God accepts believers because of this sacrifice that they're bringing on to celebrate this Passover is going to be superseded. It's going to be superimposed by another temple, by another sacrifice. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And so in his non-answer, Jesus is not answer, answer. Jesus points to himself as the true temple, the true location of worship and the true source of worship. If you fast forward to chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. And so Jesus is showing here that he and he alone is worthy to be that central object of worship. So get the picture. This is not a small insignificant event like the wedding at Cana in Galilee. This is an incredibly visible public event. Jesus goes in, raises a sanctified ruckus, and we just can assume because those people then are people like us, what are we going to do? Right? We're going to draw into the what's going on. I mean, you hear a siren. Oh, I wonder what happened. You hear a crash. Oh, I wonder what happened. We get drawn to these types of things. And so there's a, there's a crowd here and this bantering back and forth as the, the Jews are trying to understand what authority through which Jesus is performing these actions. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that's the end of what Jesus says. He's speaking about the temple of his body. We don't hear, hear him even explaining what's going on. So what is he saying? He is saying that he and he alone is the true location of worship. We'll see it in chapter 4 again as, with his encounter with the woman at the well. When she decides to enter into a theological conversation with the Son of God, kind of a debate with Jesus, and ask about location. Jews say Jerusalem, we say Mount Gerizim, which one is the location? Jesus says, it's not about location. The time is coming and the hour is at hand. When God is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus is saying here, I am the location and I am the source of worship. And so, <coughs> to go back to the two expressions of improper worship, that being confused worship and obstructed worship. What, what is Jesus doing here? Think about those two aspects, confusion and obstruction. One, Jesus eliminates worship confusion. 
So just as best we can, put, put our minds in the setting of the day. Worshippers would have entered this temple court and were immediately met with this chaotic environment. Merchants everywhere. It's like a market. It's not like a temple. It's like a market. And bartering going on and confusion and chaos would have been prevalent. And so Jesus goes in and actually forcefully removes confusion from the worship that should have been taking place. Why? Because the temple was a place for people to actually encounter God and to worship God. But instead of experiencing worship toward God and encountering God, the people are being distracted by this whole system of commerce that is in the complex that was reserved for worship. And so this this temple, the place... <clears throat> where worshipers experienced the glory of God was full of confusion. And Jesus was more than disturbed by what it had become. He was angry. And so what does he do? He eliminates confusion. He starts running merchants out. He starts flipping tables. He starts pouring out coin buckets. And in eliminating worship confusion, Jesus actually does the same thing for us. He shows us the truth of the gospel more and more clearly, removing confusion so that we can actually see him as the supreme object of our worship. And so he's eliminating worship confusion. Also, Jesus eliminates worship obstruction. So we had confusion as you go into the temple, but there's also an aspect where there's an obstruction to get to where you actually want to go in the temple. These events occurred in the temple court, which is also known as the court of the Gentiles. So if you look at just a diagram of the temple complex, there's a court that's going around the temple that is the court of Gentiles. The temple has various levels of entry, Gentiles, women, uh, holy place, most holy place. But the court of the Gentiles was the outermost court and everyone had access to this level. All right. Jew Gentile could come into this level. That's where all of this is going on. Even those outside of the covenant family of God, those non-Jews, could come into this level of the temple. And so one writer makes this comment, the noise and the smell of the animals would have made it impossible for a Gentile to actually approach God in prayer. Now we said earlier that the problem was not with the practice so much as it was with the location. This practice actually started outside of the temple complex, somewhere around the Mount of Olives and in the Brook Kidron and around the temple but over time, this practice began, began to encroach on the temple itself, obstructing access to the inner portions of the temple, specifically for the Gentiles. So think about it. The very access point for those outside the covenant family of God, i.e. nations, was obstructed. And so what does Jesus do? He eliminates the obstruction. And he does so to demonstrate that he will ultimately remove all obstructions to true God worship for all peoples and all nations. And so then we see where the disciples, confused in the moment certainly, but post-resurrection, John includes the note, he's speaking about the temple of his body. His temple, his, his body is going to be raised up in three days. And so when they raised from the dead, they're like, oh, that's what he was talking about. That's the temple he was going to raise in three days. And then even in the resurrection, what is Christ doing? He's removing confusion and obstruction so that his followers can see him. So they can see him. And when you see Christ in the trueness of seeing Christ, what is your response? Worship. Worship. This is not about anger. This is not about setting things straight. This is not about 
going in, flipping tables and running people out of the church. This is about worship. And Jesus is on purpose at the beginning of his ministry, pointing to the fact that he is going to be all about the business of removing confusion and obstructions to worship, pointing to himself. And then we see this in the last note that John includes in this text. So verse 23, we see this superficial faith versus saving faith. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So he didn't perform just like the wedding at Cana. He didn't perform on command. It's like, hey, what sign are you going to show? Oh, yeah, watch this. Boom. He's going to make doves appear in the air or something. Right. He doesn't he doesn't perform on command. But he does perform signs. We don't know exactly what they are, but John says he they saw the signs that he was doing. And so many believed, which sounds good until we get to verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he didn't know one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, this is a bridge. We don't have time to get into it, but this is a bridge going into the story that's going to flow in chapter three. Jesus encounter with Nicodemus and having this conversation of what it means to be born again. But verse 24, the people trusted in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. Points to the fact that Jesus knows the difference between shallow, superficial faith and true saving faith. And so the question for us, church, has to be which which faith do we have? Do we have a surface level faith or do we have a faith that actually saves? And the disciples, back to verse 22, they understood and they believe when this obstruction and confusion, when they were removed through the resurrection. But then we have this other group of people, which is concerning, disturbing, alarming even, when we get to verses 24 and 25. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew. It's the same language there. They believed and entrust, the same root word. And so we know the kind of similar thing is going on. But there's an, there's an expression of faith that is not true, genuine faith. And so verse 23, they see signs. What if a miracle worker comes in here, you actually see the sign. What are you going to do? You're going to believe, right? It may not be so much like, man, I'm staking my life for all of eternity on what I see here, but I'm going to, in some way or another, believe. And that's John's language here. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew that they had a form of believing, but not eternity shaping, saving faith believing. And so they were, to use Matthew chapter 13's language, they were the rocky ground, they were the thorny soil of the, the parable of the sower. Initially, it seems legit, right? But it's shallow, it's superficial, it's not genuine, it's not, it's not saving. And so Jesus does not in turn entrust himself to them. And as we continue to track through John's gospel, we'll see Jesus continually. Removing obstruction, removing confusion. Take some time this week, read John chapter 3. You see the encounter with Nicodemus, who was an expert in the law. He probably was one of the ones here being like, uh, hey bro, what you doing? What sign do you do? What's your authority? And then Nicodemus goes to him at night and starts having this conversation with him. And Jesus in that conversation is removing obstruction, removing confusion. Not so that you can think clearly. Not so that you can live with purpose. Not so that you can have a great life, but so that you can see Him. That's the whole purpose that Jesus goes through and purges the temple so that He could say, this is not the final object of worship. This is not the ultimate location of worship. I am. 
And when he says destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He's prophetically saying you are going to kill me. But that will not be the end of the story. Because in three days this temple, me, the temple of my body, verse 21, I'm coming up. I'm going to be raised up. And so contextually we live not in a first century context. We don't have temple courts through which we can sell animals and exchange money and all of these kinds of things. But we also realize that we live in a society and even in a church culture that we are very much prone to providing confusion and obstruction toward true, genuine Christ worship. And so against that reality... Jesus, the Word made flesh, the, in the beginning was the Word. Against that reality, Jesus, through the preaching and receiving of the Gospel and the study of the Word, He, in a way, comes in to our lives and into our churches and flips tables and runs out sources of obstruction and confusion to leave us with one person for our worship, Himself. And so in times and in seasons, what does Christ do for His glory and by His goodness and His grace? He wrecks our lives. He crushes us. He brings us to the end of ourselves. To do what? To eliminate obstruction and confusion. What is He doing? He's flipping tables. He's pouring out money baskets. He's running the oxen and the sheep out. Why? So that we see that those aren't worthy of our life's worship. That He alone is worthy of our life's worship. Why? Because He is the true temple. He is the place that we worship God. Why? Because He is God. He never had to say to anyone in any encounter with people during His life, hey, you need to go there so you can worship Me. Because He was there. The source and object of worship was there. Now think about how Jesus does this thing. He removes these confusions and and obstructions to our worship and doesn't say, now go do this. When we see Him clearly, we see Him as that object of worship. And then by His grace and for His glory, He actually empowers us by the Holy Spirit to actually worship Him. And He does that consistently through our understanding and response to the Gospel. Constantly preaching the Gospel to ourselves. We can apply this on the church level. We can apply this in a national level, personal level. But we are all inherently good at creating obstructions and confusion. And that comes through sin. It comes through situation in life. It comes through diverted priorities. It comes through just a myriad. I don't want to give examples because I might miss one. You'd be like, oh, well, I'm off the hook. We, we We know what we're talking about here. We are good at putting up obstruction to... Christ glorifying worship of Christ Himself. And then in His kindness, when to be clear, Jesus is angry, but Jesus' anger here is a grace-motivated anger. Jesus is motivated by grace. He's going in and He's removing those things that were obstructing people's worship and then revealing Himself as a true object of worship. What do we call that? Grace. Right? This isn't, he's not going in there all wrathful. He's acting in anger. I mean, this isn't like, oh, that's a cool moment. It was like, whoa, what's that guy doing? 
And so we see anger being demonstrated, but this anger is motivated by grace. And for his disciples specifically and all the other listeners and viewers in the moment, they saw someone being angry, but then post-resurrection, what the disciples see is, oh, that was grace. That was grace. And God in His grace does the same thing to us by the Holy Spirit. We call it sanctification. Right? Where He's constantly pushing us toward the true object of our worship. And in our flesh, we're constantly throwing up obstructions. Other objects of worship. Other people that we worship. Other things that we worship. Pursuits that we worship. And God is constantly coming in by the Holy Spirit and flipping tables. He does it through a myriad of ways. Through our personal time in the Word. Through confrontation from a brother or sister. Through church discipline. Through all kinds of ways. But the goal of all of these ways is to bring us back to the fact that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is the location of our worship. And even from a local church standpoint, it doesn't matter if we meet here, we meet under a pavilion down the road, we meet in a 15,000 seat auditorium. Jesus alone is the location of our worship. He's the location, He's the source, and He's the power through which we worship Him. He alone does this. He alone does this. And so as we sing in just a second in response to the truth, just ask the Lord, Lord, what obstructions have I put up in my worship and devotion towards you? Lord, where, where am I confused? Where, what table do you need to flip even in my own life? What money basket needs to be poured out so I can just hear the coins rolling on the ground, realizing that this was an obstruction to supreme and sincere devotion to you and to you alone? And trust that by His grace, when those obstructions are exposed, we see Christ. We see Jesus. We see the Word made flesh who dwelt among us and we behold His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.